Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing well. And happy Palm Sunday, Easter, next week. We're excited. Uh, hey, we've got some uh, info cards for you, uh, or invite cards, I should say, uh, out on the desk in the foyer out here, the info desk in the front. Um, so grab a couple of those, one, two, or ten, uh, and give those out, right? Pass those out to people who are unchurched that may not have a church home that you think would love to come uh, worship with us next week for Easter. And hey, this is momentous, right? Because uh, last year, we, you had the unfortunate uh, privilege of watching me, right, on your TV screen while you were on your couch in your pajamas, right? So, man, a lot better this year. You still have, unfortunately, you still have to watch me, but, but we can be here together. So I'm excited. This Easter is very special. We get to be here together and worship as uh, one body, the body of Christ. So next Sunday, services at 9 and 11, no community groups at 10. Man, let's, let's come and let's celebrate our risen Savior next week. So we're excited about that. All right, well, we're continuing our series called Exiles. We're tracking through the book of First Peter. And today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. So let me pray for us and uh, ask the Lord to bless His Word as we receive it this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for our time together. Lord, I thank You for the way You spoke to us in the 9 o'clock service. I thank You for the community groups we had at 10 o'clock. And now here we are, Lord, in this service. And we pray that You would bless us uh, as we listen to your word, Holy Spirit, enlighten us to its truth and change us from the inside out to better reflect your love in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So up until this point in First Peter, uh, Peter has been mostly talking about our identity as elect exiles, right? That's those two words together make that phrase. That's that's who we are. We are God's chosen special people, right? We're his people, but we're living in a foreign land. We're living in a place that is not truly our home, right? So as believers, as followers of Jesus, we belong to a uh, heavenly kingdom, right? We, we, we belong. Our citizenship is not on this earth. Our permanent citizenship is in heaven with God. So Peter's been explaining this, uh, really the, the root of that up until this point, and now we come to really a turning point in this letter. Now he's going to start addressing some really specific topics that as Christians we need to think through, right, if we're actually going to live as God's people in this world, as exiles, how do we engage the culture around us? So, the overarching point from verse 11, where we're starting today, really to the end of chapter 4, is, is pretty much this. Peter, you could summarize it this way, he's telling us our actions must match the message we proclaim. All right? So he's been very clear up front on the message, right? The gospel, uh, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our one true Savior, and salvation only comes through Him. That's the message. Now, he's going to start addressing these cultural issues and topics which were very relevant in the first century when he wrote this, but are, as you will see, extremely relevant today. All right, so he's going to walk us through some things, and here's how he introduces 
this whole next section of his letter, you can see that in just the first two verses today, verse 11 and 12. So I want us to look at these two verses before we really dive into the meat of today's sermon, because these serve as that introduction to the rest of the letter. So here's what he says, verse 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's saying here, first of all, that there is a war going on within us. So it's not just a cultural battle. It's not just a social issue. There is a war going on within each of us as believers, right? And that war is what? It's between our sinful nature, our flesh, right? The passions of our flesh, the lingering sin that we try to fight off, uh, the, the temptations and all the things that we have to deal with as part of our sinful humanity. But then the other side is our redeemed self, right? Our soul is redeemed and belongs to Christ. So we have to make a conscious effort to put away our sinful tendencies and yield to the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives through the Word of God, through intimacy with Jesus and spending time in prayer, right? These are kind of the pathways we have to actually win that battle, to win that war. So we submit to Jesus, right? We submit to Him and His authority over our lives. That's what that war within is, right? So we have to submit to the authority of Christ over our own souls. And then as we do that, as we live lives of holiness and love for God, then look what happens in verse 12. It becomes a reality, right? If we live honorable lives, Peter says, lives of holiness and respect and integrity, if we do that in our society, then a watching world will notice. Even though they will criticize our theological beliefs, Yes, that's going to happen no matter what, right? Because there's a conflict of belief system between us and the world. So the criticism of our beliefs will come. But Peter is saying that if we live lives of holiness and goodness, submitting to Jesus' authority over us, if our lives are filled with that kind of character and love, then even a lost world will recognize our behavior. They will see that our actual behavior and our actions match the message we're proclaiming. If they see us as loving and humble and tenderhearted and caring and doing good for all, our actions match that gospel we say we stake our whole lives upon. And Peter says, you know what? In the end, this may just win some people over to the faith. Really, I think Peter was just mirroring what Jesus already said. You know, as Peter's writing this, he has to be thinking of the teachings that Jesus taught him as one of his close disciples. And Jesus said something so similar in Matthew 5, 16. You can look on the screen. Jesus told his disciples, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, what? They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, 
That's the challenge. That's the overarching point that Peter has for us in pretty much the remainder of this letter, at least until chapter 5. And so he's going to just go through topic after topic of how we do this. How do we winsomely witness to this world and show them that our actions actually match our message? And so the first topic that Peter is going to cover is something that is never controversial at all. And I'm sure we 100% all agree uh, in the same direction, right? It's how should we engage with politics and government? All right. (laughs) Some of you were about to fall asleep, and all of a sudden you perked up like, oh, I'm going to listen to this one. Right? This should be good. Okay. So buckle up. Here we go. How should Christians engage with politics and government? Now, this is a very important question, and it's not random, right? It may seem random. Well, why is Peter all of a sudden talking about this? But you got to remember the first century, right? I mean, you've got all kinds of, of different belief systems. You have all kinds of governments in the world, primarily the Roman Empire, which I'll talk about in just a second. So it's very important for these first century Christians living in the Roman Empire to understand. Okay, well, we're living in this Roman Empire, right? Now, what do we do about that? Do we seclude ourselves? Do we get involved? Like, how do we interact with the politics and the government around us? And of course, we know this is extremely, extremely relevant and applicable to where we are today as 21st century Americans. So here's what Peter has to say. He's going to answer this question for us in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. So this is one paragraph where he's answering this question, and we're going to spend our time today breaking it down. But I want to read the whole thing first. So verses 13 through 17 say this, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme." or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right, so here we go. So the first thing I think Peter, or the first way he answers that question, how, how should we as Christians in the 21st century engage in politics and government? Well, I think the first thing we see in this passage is this. Christians should submit to governing authorities because they are ordained by God. Christians should submit to governing authorities because they are ordained by God. Now, here's what we have to think about. The best place to always start is thinking about who God is, okay? Not who a politician is, not what you think, but who is God? Well, think about that. One of the main characteristics of God is that He is not a God of chaos and confusion and disorder. Our God is a God of order and authority, right? And so, we reflect that truth about him to an unbelieving world when we show the world what it's like to actually submit to authority. Okay? So that's from that. So what that means is practically speaking, right? We submit to the authority of all types of governing authorities that God has instituted and ordained to be over us. So that's from the president 
of the United States all the way down to the president of your homeowners association, all right? You may not like either one, or you may love both of them. Either way, we are called to submit because they are authorities that God has given that power to, and we show the world what it looks like to submit to authority as we do so. Now, Paul said something very similar in Romans chapter uh, 13, verses 1 and 2. So we just looked at verses 13 and 14. We submit to the emperor. We submit to the local governor, Peter says. But now Paul says this in a very similar way. Look at the screen, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, before you get in all of tizzy, okay, I want you to listen closely. We have to keep in mind the context, right? Keep in mind the context in which Peter and Paul are writing this, okay? Both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are writing this truth as men who were beaten and falsely imprisoned unjustly by their government. <laughs> and yet they can still say this? I mean, the, the local government was bad, right? To them, they, they persecuted Peter and Paul for preaching the gospel. They threw them in jail unjustly, right? They hadn't done anything wrong. And so there was great injustice. Yet, Peter and Paul say, we got to respect our authorities. we got to submit to that authority. The emperor. Now, this is wild. It really is. When Peter says, honor the emperor, I want you to understand who he's talking about. He's not just talking about some politician who won an election. No, 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 no. There was no election. This emperor was a dictator. His name was Nero. Okay, that's who was uh, the Roman emperor when Peter wrote this letter. And guess what? This guy was cruel. I mean, he was bad, like really evil and wicked and bad. He had his own mom murdered. That's pretty bad. I would, look, I would put that pretty close to the top of all the bad things you could do, right? And so that's the kind of guy that Peter in the Scriptures is saying we should honor? That doesn't seem to make any sense. So my point is this. As I preach through this today, just remember, if Paul and Peter can say this about such an evil and wicked person, guess what? We can say it about anybody. We can say it, too, in our day, in our modern time, we can submit to authority. So when talking about the government, it's good to start with the purpose of government in terms of God's master plan for humanity, right? And you can see that here, right? So as we submit, it's good to think, what is God's purpose in government? Well, a large part of it is in verse 14. Look what Peter says again in verse 14. He says, one of the main purposes of government is to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. So here's where that fits in the context of a biblical worldview, okay, of a Christian view of the world. Because we know, as believers in Christ and what the Bible teaches us, that the curse of sin covers this whole planet, right? So when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, it infiltrated all living things, truly, 
us as humans primarily, but even the natural world is broken and not the way it should be. But God and something we call His common grace, His common grace allows civilizations to flourish for a certain amount of time, for certain purposes that only He knows, and for His glory. So no civilization is going to last forever. No country or nation will last forever. You see the rise and what? The fall of the Roman Empire. All nations are temporary. And so God, His kingdom, is the only one that will last for all eternity and forever. Yet, in His common grace, He allows societies to thrive for His appointed amount of time. And so that means that the world is actually not as bad as it could be. Now, in light of recent news and all the kinds of things we see around the world, you may say, well, it seems pretty bad. And it is. Sin is destructive. It destroys who we are at our core, and it leads humans to do unthinkable things. Yet, in God's common grace to all people, in His mercy, He does not let us spiral out of complete control. There is still civility and order in the world, and that's His grace. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this kind of common grace. He says of God the Father in Matthew 5, 45, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, think about that. God shows His common grace to all people, right? So the good and the bad Feel the, the nurturing rain, right, when it comes down. The evil and the good, the just and the unjust, feel the warmth of the sun as it shines upon us. All people live under, under the goodness of a good creator. And why is that? Because all people are created in God's image. And He is a compassionate God. He's a God of authority, yet He is also compassionate and merciful to His creation. So what we have to see here and remember as we talk about the role of a government is that all people are created in the image of God. It's in every single person. And even in a secular society, we must acknowledge that wherever good exists, wherever truth is to be found, even in a secular society in things that are not necessarily labeled as Christian, if it's good and if it's true, it ultimately comes from the creator of all things good and true. Right? It comes from all things good and true. So for our discussion here, we need to see that part of the role of government then, ordained by God, instituted by Him, is to be a means of retaining evil and promoting good restraining evil and promoting good for a society to thrive. That's God's plan. Now, in light of this, it's good and right, and it's the will of God, Peter says in verse 15, for us to submit to our governing authorities on both a local and national level, whether we voted for them or not. And I think when we do that, we show the world, we show the world what it is like to not live just for yourself and your own interests. We show the world what it's like to submit 
to a higher authority, ultimately pointing them to God himself. The second thing we see Peter answer for us here, how should we engage with politics and government, is this. Christians should work alongside governing authorities for the betterment of our society. We should work alongside the governing authorities around us for a collective effort to make our city and our world, our nation, a better place. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Peter puts it this way. He says, for this is the will of God. This is not the will of a politician. This is not even just the will of Peter. This is the will of God, he says, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter tells us it's the will of God for us to be good citizens. It's the will of God for us to be good citizens in whatever nation or country we live in, to do good. And this kind of goes back to what he just said in verse 12, right? Look at verse 12 again. What did he say? He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And just so you know, the word Gentile means anyone who was not a believer, right? That's, how, that's the word Peter uses to kind of refer to anybody not in the church, not a believer, right? So all the unbelieving world, keep your actions among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, right? When they launch false accusations against the church, when they say Christians are a bunch of, you know, uh, bigots and, and closed-minded and their beliefs are narrow and all these things. That's going to come. So when our theological beliefs are attacked, Peter says, but, but if you're living honorable lives, if you're doing good in your society, maybe, just maybe, they will see that good and they will say, you know, this person, I don't, I don't think I believe everything that that preacher's saying but that church was so nice to me, I'm going to come back. I don't, I don't think I believe everything that my Christian co-worker is telling me about the founding of the world and God and this Jesus gospel stuff. But you know what, man? When I was in the hospital, he came to see me. I just really liked that person. You see what God is doing? Do you see the instruction here? Peter is saying, look, as we show the world love, and kindness and serve them and not just our own interests, then we are creating a pathway. We are creating an open door for Jesus to come through in the gospel and save people and win them to the Lord. So as the world, right, as the world sees us contributing to society and loving others with no selfish gain, no selfish motivation or interest, man, that speaks. That speaks. Those actions validate the gospel message we proclaim with our words. So in theory, when you're talking about government, right, we should see the government as an ordained institution of God for the restraint of evil and the promotion of good, and we should see the government as a partner in that process of making our society a better place, right? So Christians are called to do that. The government ordained by God is called to do that. We should see each other as a partner. But here's the reality sometimes. Very often, there will be sharp disagreement 
as to how we go about that, right? So there's going to be sharp disagreement between our government and politicians and Christians as to really, it really comes down to definition or to definitions, right? So what the secular world defines as good and evil may not line up with what Scripture defines as good and evil. And that's really the point of the disagreement, correct? So when you, start, when you, when you look at it that way, we have to understand, yes, okay, we are defining what is good and we are defining what is evil in a different way. So that's easy to get frustrated about, right? I mean, that's super easy to get frustrated because as we seek to partner alongside authorities and, and government for the betterment of our society, right, it, it's super frustrating. But here's my encouragement to you. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As Christians interacting with a secular government, here's what we do. We applaud, right? We applaud and support where the image of God is magnified. And yes, when need be, we condemn where it is not. But all the while, whether it's condemning the evil or applauding the good, we are seeking to do good, right? We are seeking to do good and seeking to submit to the authority within the bounds of Scripture and God's truth. Now, let's go back to the first century. And in fact, let's even go back further than that. When Peter's writing this, he's talking to these Christians living in a very pagan society with a very evil ruler over them, okay? But if you go back even further, a few hundred years, what you see is the nation of Israel being attacked and held captive and taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire, okay? And so I want us to read something in Jeremiah chapter 29, these are God's instructions to His people who were actually living as real exiles in Babylon, okay? So His people are living in a pagan society, and they're living in a place where there were temples with all kinds of false gods and statues around. And look, I know that's true because I saw it on Rick Steves, okay? So I'm just letting you know. <laughs> But that's, that's what it was. Babylon was a crazy place, right? There was pluralism. There were multiple gods they believed in, just all kinds of belief systems, right? And now God's people are living in exile in that great, huge, ancient city. And so what does God tell them? Well, let's see. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Here's how he tells those exiles living in a foreign land as his people to live. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I love, let me just stop right there. I love that it says, whom I have sent into exile. God sent his people into exile for one reason was punishment for their sin, but also who knows what his grand purpose was in taking all of that influence into the Babylonian empire. So God had a purpose and a plan here. But look what he continues to say. This is God speaking. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
Listen to this, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Well, I cannot imagine when Jeremiah spoke those words to some of the Israelites and they looked back at him and said, you got to be kidding. You're, you're, you're telling me you want me to pray for the people who captured us and brought us here against our will? You're, you're, you're telling me that you, you want me to settle down here? To build a house in this city with all these pagan temples and statues to false gods all around me? You want us to work in this city? You want us to live in this city? You want us to, to seek the welfare of these crazy People who aren't yours, Lord? Hey, Jeremiah, you've, you've, you're crazy, man. I'm not doing that. I'd rather seclude myself and just pretend like this is all just not even here. But, but notice in God's instructions, there is no command of seclusion. He's not telling his people to isolate themselves from the world and pretend like all that stuff is just not there. He's also not telling them to compromise their faith and give in and just live just like the Babylonians. But he's also not telling them to impose their beliefs on the Babylonians. There's another option that God is commanding, and it is one of engagement. He is asking his people to engage the wicked culture around them, not compromise, not seclusion, not imposing, but yet sacrificially loving and seeking their welfare and praying for them. We should seek the welfare of our city. These are the words of the Lord. I didn't write this. This is God speaking. We should seek the welfare of our city. We should seek the welfare of Jacksonville. As elect exiles in this world, in this city, God has you here. Maybe you grew up here. Maybe you just moved here. But whatever the case, whatever the background, whatever the story, we are here. And we are to show the love of Christ to a hurting world. We don't seclude ourselves from our neighbors who don't love the Lord. We don't walk over and impose our beliefs on them. We don't compromise and live just like them. But we engage them. And we love them. And we serve them in hopes of sharing those good words that Jesus died for them and there is a better way. That this world is not all there is. That the brokenness in their lives is not permanent. That one day all things sad will be made untrue. As we love and as we serve our city and our people around us that don't know the Lord, the end goal is not some kind of utopia. That is not going to happen. The end goal is the love of Jesus Christ in their hearts. So we need... Christians involved, right? I mean, how do we do this, right? Like this all sounds good from a sermon. This all sounds good on paper or a vision statement, but how do we seek the betterment of our society and love our own city? I think we have to get involved. I think we have to get involved in local endeavors and get to know people. Man, we need Christians involved in the local workforce. That's what we need. We need gospel-centered Christians working as public school teachers, 
and nurses and doctors and lawyers and in business and the local arts and the local government and the, and the school board for the poor, for the needy, for the elderly, for children in need. We need Christians who love Jesus showing the love they've received to all these people. And we love and we serve these people because our end goal is that they will come to know the Lord Himself. And that is the best life they could ever have. So we work alongside the authorities God's given us for the betterment of our city. The third thing, the third answer really that Peter gives us to this great question is that we must always remember where our real hope is. We can never lose sight of where our real hope lies. And I think that's what Peter's getting at in verse 17. He, he concludes this thought, right, this paragraph, with his, with his talk about how Christians should interact with government and honor people and the emperor and all this. And, and look what he says in verse 17. Just four quick sentences Four bullet points that he wraps this up with. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now again, remember the context. He's talking about an evil, wicked emperor named Nero who was crazy. But Peter is talking here about priority. Look at the priorities and the way he uses his language here. Honor everyone. Okay. So what that means is that all people, Christian and non-Christian, we honor because they bear the image of God, so we treat them with respect and dignity, and we serve them in hopes of showing the grace of Christ to them, all people, without exception. Honor everyone. But then Peter says there is a special love in the brotherhood. In other words, in the church, in the family of God, there is a bond united by the blood of Christ that nothing can break. So there's a special love even within the church. But then he moves to the bigger picture and says, fear God, honor the emperor. Now that word fear in the New Testament means a reverent awe. Notice he doesn't say fear the emperor in that way. Because there's only one person, there's only one person who we look at with a reverent awe. There's only one person that we stand in front of amazed at his power and what he's capable of doing. And it's not the emperor it's not the president. It's God himself. Do you see the priority here that Peter is laying for us? Fear God. Stand before him and him alone with reverent awe. And while you do that, honor the emperor. So where's our real hope? That's really what we're getting at here. Where is our real hope for change in this world? You know, this is funny to me. Every four years, every four years, when the presidential election comes up, you always hear the same thing. This is the most important election of our lifetime. All right, we all need to get to the polls. This is the most important election. There's never been one more important than this. If this guy doesn't get in office, boy, the world's just going to fall apart. We're all going to die. Right? An asteroid's going to hit the earth tomorrow if we don't vote. Right? And listen, I'm not just trying to be funny, but I'm telling you, it's, that's real. Like, you hear that. And let me tell you something. Guys, look, you hear it from both sides. Okay? Both sides. Both sides and everything in between. They always act like the world's getting, it's more and more critical, right? Well, okay. We've had, how many presidents have we had? I should know this. I'm bad with history. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> Somebody, come on. Uh, 43? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 
I'm just embarrassing myself now. I'm going to stop. So here's what we know. Okay, we're going to hear that every four years, right? We're going to hear the same thing because it's just a game. It's a ploy to get people to vote to get their guy in office, right? So, so we need to realize, right? We've got to realize as Christians, okay, we hear the rhetoric, we hear the passion, we know the importance of some of these issues, absolutely. But what we as followers of the one true God and creator of all things and authority over all things know that the rest of the world doesn't know is that government and politics are not our biggest problem. They're just not. Now, they may be a problem, but they are by far not our biggest. Because I'll tell you what my biggest problem is, is the sin in my own heart. And that's the biggest problem in your life, too. It's not what the president tells you to do or doesn't tell you to do, or your governor or your mayor or whatever. It's the sin in your own heart, the passions of the flesh. Peter introduces this whole thing by talking about the war within our own selves. And so we know that government is not our biggest problem. But what we also need to show the world through our lives and our actions and our words is that our government is also not the solution to the problem. This sin problem that we all have, government cannot fix. Now, with that said, government is ordained by God, so it's a good thing. And we should work alongside government instead of retreating from it or instead of imposing our beliefs into it. But what we have to show the world is that Jesus himself is our only real hope. It's Jesus. It's not a politician. It's not a political party. It's Christ alone is our only true saving hope that can transform your heart and your life and the way that you love your wife and your husband and your kids and your neighbor. A politician doesn't control the way you treat others. Only Christ changes our hearts, which eventually changes our culture. So how do we do this? I want to just give you some two quick practical, practical things. How do we remember? How do we show the world where our real hope lies? Okay? Well, two things quick. Number one, we have to tone down the rhetoric. Okay? We do. Like, I'm, I'm not saying you can't be passionate about politics. In fact, I think you could agree I've said kind of the opposite, right? We need to be involved. We need to engage. But we need to do so in a Christ-like manner, right? We need to tone down the rhetoric. The rhetoric. We don't need to demonize the other side as if they are pure Satan himself evolved into whatever. We don't, why? Why are we doing that? Don't demonize the other side. Listen, I can't say this better than this, so I'm going to read something from uh, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says it so well. He says it this way. He says, when either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else, and a poisonous environment is created. He says it so well. I mean, how many of you would agree there's a poisonous environment in the politics of America? Absolutely there is. 
But as Christians, living in a nation that is very divided, where every, t- where every little issue tends to polarize us and separate us further and further, let's speak words of kindness and truth, number one. And number two, how can we show the world where our real hope is? Number two, let's show them the unifying power of the gospel. So there's plenty of division. You can look anywhere and see the division. But if we live out verses 15 through 17 that Peter's instructing us here, we can show the unifying power of the gospel. He says, honor everyone. All people created in the image of God. How do we do that? You see, Christianity is a unifying power that the world does not have to offer. The world has nothing that compares to the power of the gospel to unite people. You see, in the world system, there are uh, so many divisions among you know, social classes, uh, sex and race, right? So certain groups may experience different treatment because of those issues. Absolutely. But in the gospel of Jesus, see, the world doesn't have a solution for that. In the gospel, there is unity amongst diversity. And the free gift of salvation is offered to all people, to the rich and the poor, to the social outcast and the insider, to the resident and the immigrant. The gospel of Jesus speaks a better word than anything the world can say to them. Nothing in the world can bring people together like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing can make us one and unite us like his blood. Galatians 3, Paul speaks of this, verses 27 and 28. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so let's, let's show the world, let's show the world through our words and our actions where the real hope is to be found. Because there's coming a day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will rule and reign forever over everyone. In fact, Isaiah was pointing to that day when he wrote about this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So I want to close by reading this and and talking a, lo- a little bit about what Isaiah is saying here. He says this in verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Today's Palm Sunday. Today's the day we commemorate 
Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And the people hailed him as king. But what they didn't realize as this king was riding before them, not on a throne lifted high by servants, not in a limousine processional, but as this king was riding before them on a humble donkey. Be assured, he was riding to a throne. He could see the throne of eternity in heaven where he will sit and rule and reign forever. But before he could sit on that throne, he had to hang on a cross. And that turned the world upside down. Because we want, we want power. And we want a leader to look like the world's definition of power. But Jesus turned everything upside down. And He showed us that true power comes by falling to our knees. And letting His death and resurrection for us be everything that we could never be. That He died for our sins and that by faith in Him and Him alone, He not only becomes our King forever, but our Father. God our Father, through His Son Jesus. Redemption. The redemption that the world has been looking for all this time. That's only found in the King of all kings hanging on a cross. But the empty tomb would be found three days later. You know, after a message like this, I don't know, what do we do? <laughs> I've already given you some application points today, but you know, for some of us, I think, I think we need to get more involved in loving our city, really. You know, here at Kernan, we have our community groups, and part of our local missions effort is for each community group to adopt a uh, local missions organization and to go and tangibly serve them together. And I'm so proud of some of our groups are already doing that. But man, they, maybe that's just what you need to do. Maybe that's a great way for you to not only serve our city and serve people in need in our community, but also get to know your fellow people here at Kernan and, and build friendships as you serve together. For some of us, we really need to just try to get to know somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe we just haven't put forth the effort to shine light in a dark place in someone's life. For some of us, we need to confess where we have demonized the other side, whichever side it may be. And we need to start praying for our leaders who are in power the way Christ would. And I think all of us, I think every single one of us need to confess where we have put our hope in places besides the Lord himself. Whether it be a political party or a politician or even just an ideal way of life. May we cast any idol to the ground. 
put it in its proper place and hold Jesus higher than anything else. Kyle's going to close us out in a song. And before he does, would you pray with me? And just in your own heart, wherever you land on the spectrum today, would you pray for these things to be true in your life? Lord Jesus, we love you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You have all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And with that authority, you command us to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, may we be faithful in showing the world as we do this where our real hope is. And as we love and serve their physical needs, Lord, would you give us opportunities to share the words of the gospel, to speak truth to them, to give them the hope that we have found in you by telling them as we serve them, life doesn't have to be like this forever. There is a God who loves you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he died for you. And he loves you. And he has a home in heaven waiting for anyone who puts their faith in him and him alone. Lord, we are truly exiles here. But God, our citizenship is in a perfect paradise that this world cannot match. But God, give us grace as we live here in this world to show them the light that is to come. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. May you grant us your Holy Spirit each day as we seek you in your word through prayer as we try to figure this out. Lord, give us great wisdom and humility moving forward. It's in your name we pray. Amen.